Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and thanks for joining us today for A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the Army War College. Over the past few weeks, an arms control treaty, the INF, has entered the lexicon of news anchors, journalists, and pundits as President Trump announced that the United States would withdraw from it. But before then, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty probably wasn't much on people's minds. So in order to demystify the INF and the recent U.S. announcement, and to think about the possible consequences for this action, we're presenting a two-part series on the treaty and the potential ramifications of U.S. withdrawal. In the first part, we'll talk with Grace Stettenbauer, a former Foreign Service officer in the State Department and a former instructor at the U.S. Army War College, who had experience with the verification and monitoring process related to the INF in the early days of the treaty. Then, in the second part, I speak with Dr. Rob Farley, who is a senior lecturer at the Patterson School at the University of Kentucky and a visiting professor at the U.S. Army War College. He is a political scientist who specializes in military doctrine and national security, and he's going to talk with us about the arguments for and against U.S. withdrawal and the consequences of the U.S. leaving the INF. So, Rob, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great. So if I were to ask you to give us a very quick rundown, what we might call INF 101, um, could you do that for us? What is it? Why is it important? Sure. Uh, so the Intermediate Nuclear uh, Forces Treaty uh, was concluded in 1987 between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, the idea was that both both sides were introducing um, new advanced ballistic missile systems in the short and intermediate range, which runs from roughly 500 kilometers to 5,500 kilometers, um, that could strike targets in Europe and targets in European Russia with almost no notice. So these missiles could be launched in multiple uh, independent warheads would strike and nobody would have any idea and what was happening. Um, the Russians were also worried about uh, American ground-launched cruise missiles, which were basically uh, you know, Tomahawk missiles that were uh, armed with nuclear warheads but were launched from ground launchers. Um, but they couldn't track those uh, even when they got over Eastern Europe, and so they were concerned that even the cruise missiles would be able to uh, sort of decapitate the Soviet leadership without them having any idea what was going on. Okay. So 1987, that's, it hasn't been, I mean, well, the end of the Cold War has been a while now. Um, Do you think that the U.S. withdrawal is sort of best understood as an attempt for the U.S. to rethink arms control agreements sort of broadly? Um, Or is it maybe a more particular move in this administration, sort of at this particular political moment um, or somewhere, somewhere in between? I think it's a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, I think there are people within this administration who just hate arms control um, and are hitting the INF first because the INF is weak in a lot of ways because sort of the... the, the gap between the structure of technology and power that uh, is underlies the INF is bigger than the gap between sa- that and, say, New START. Um, and so I think, yeah, there are some people who just don't like arms control and want to get rid of the INF. Um, 
But there are also some good reasons to get rid of the INF. Um, the first of these reasons is that almost everyone agrees the Russians are cheating, um, that they're developing systems that um, can launch within the window, this 500-kilometer to 5,500-kilometer window, um, that they're not supposed to be designing systems around. And they're even deploying some of those systems quietly. The Russians also accuse us of cheating because we have drones, and drones are kind of like cruise missiles, and they want to pretend our drones are cruise missiles. Um, the bigger reason I think that some people want to pull out of the INF is China. Um, China is not covered by the INF. It's not bound by it. It's not cheating on the INF because um, it's, not it's not part, part of, it, of it, right? It's just building thousands and thousands of missiles that would be prohibited by the INF if mm -hmm. it were part of it. Um, I think Harry Harris, the uh, former PACOM commander, estimated something like 95% of the missiles that China builds um, are within the prohibited INF structure. Um, and the threat that missiles pose has changed since 1987. Back in 87, everybody was really worried about nuclear cruise missiles and nuclear ballistic missiles. Um, what people are worried about today, especially in the Pacific, are conventionally armed cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, which are predominantly what the Chinese have. Um, and it's these conventionally armed missiles that can strike with uh, considerable precision. They can blow up airfields. They can even blow up ships. And people are thinking, I think rightly, that this is a tremendous military advantage for China, that they are able to build these kinds of systems and the United States can't because of its agreement with Russia. Okay. So it sounds like there's a couple of different options. Um, if if there's broad agreement maybe that the INF is not, not doing what, um, what it was intended to, right, a different geopolitical environment, different um, technological context as well, but you have either an option to withdraw or to amend, perhaps bring China in. Is there, what are the arguments sort of on, on both sides? So the, the pro argument has been, it fully recognizes that Russia is um, uh, violating the treaty, but it argues that we can take steps that'll bring Russia back into compliance, right? That um, we can convince them to do things like reduce the size of the fuel tanks on their cruise missiles, mm -hmm. and so that'll, that'll bring them back. Um, some people have also talked about, hey, China, let's bring you into this uh, arrangement and then you'll be bound. But nobody talks very seriously about that because there is literally no one of any seriousness who thinks that the Chinese would do would that. Would agree to right. that. It would be a terrible idea for the Chinese. They have a huge advantage in all of these systems and they have no reason to stop mm -hmm. building them. Um, and it sounds like they don't have the same concerns about a destabilized sort of global order, right? They're geographically quite different from where the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc and NATO were sort of lining up on the European continent. Right. There's nothing There's nothing particularly destabilizing about the idea of glickums or uh, even intermediate and short-range ballistic missiles um, for the Chinese because they understand that if the United States wanted to decapitate China, it could do so anytime it wanted. It doesn't need those things to do that. Um, and so they don't have that same kind of concern that the Russians mm -hmm. did about decapitation. Um, and so even to the extent people have said, let's bring in China, usually it's just, well, at least let's pretend to offer that we're bringing in China before we pull out, right? Because that'll look better. Okay. Um, but there's nobody who think this, thinks that China's going to be interested in being part of this system. Okay. So that thinks that's a really viable option. Right. Um, what if the U.S. were to withdraw from the treaty, do you think that gives the U.S. sort of more, does it give the U.S. more freedom of action in in this regard, in either competing with China, in um, rethinking sort of collective security in Western Europe? Well, I mean, to, to take the China part first, um, 
you know, even at a very minimal, just using old legacy systems. I mean, you know, we, we could just take a VLS system and park it in Guam, um, uh, you know, off of a ship and park it in Guam and call it a ground-launched uh, launcher. And that would introduce capabilities that we didn't have yesterday, and that, but that we will have tomorrow in terms of uh, challenging um, Chinese control or Chinese operations in the East China Sea and so forth. Um, and that's something that's barred by the INF Treaty. Um, and then down the road, you can look at developing new kinds of systems. You can look at road mobile cruise missile systems that if the Japanese wanted, you could park in Japan. If the Philippines wanted, you could park in the Philippines. Right now, that's touchy on both of those countries. But, you know, diplomacy is diplomacy, and who knows? Um, you know, with respect to the Europeans, there is a concern about pulling out of the treaty that, you know, the Russians are just going to throw up their hands and say, all right, well, we'll just build more of these systems and we'll just deploy more of them. Sure, maybe we were cheating before, but now you'll see what we But really now you, you'll give us sort of actual free reign to do right. anything we want. Right, right, right. Um, but even there, um, you know, the United States can turn some of its um, anti-ballistic missile system launchers into uh, cruise missile launchers. Um, the Russians have been worried about that for a long time, and we haven't really looked into it, but we could. Um, and so that would sort of balance the Russian advantage. But, you know, the Europeans should not be happy about this, right? It does put them at more mm -hmm. threat. It's a legitimate bad thing for the Europeans, even if it's overall a good thing for the United States. Okay. And so given that um, that sort of calculus, right, if it's bad for European allies, uh, perhaps good for the U.S., um, is there is there another is there another alternative that you could imagine the U.S. pursuing in this instance? Yeah. I mean, the, the first alternative would just be to make the uh, conclusion that um, the European alliance is more important, right, and to focus on sea-launched and air-launched systems uh, in the Pacific, which we have, um, and they can hit giant targets in China. They don't introduce all of the problems for the Chinese that ground-launch systems do, um, but we have those, and we can just continue to focus on those. They're more expensive in some ways, too. Um, and there are other ways that um, we can develop systems that um, will do some of the things that INF prohibited systems do, but we can pretend that they don't violate the INF. So the Army has a couple things that can destroy stuff within this prohibited range, 500 kilometers to 5,500 kilometers, that the Army is working hard to pretend does not violate the INF. Mm -hmm. right? It says, no, it's not a missile, it's an artillery piece. No, so it's... Sort of careful, careful wording exactly. and... Exactly. Maybe skirting skirting some of the issues around the edges. It's not a missile. It's a suicidal drone, right? I mean, you know, that <laughs> that kind of talk that um, sort of skirts around the INF without without okay. killing it. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that that I was thinking about is within the rubric of sort of treaties and understanding how treaties function within the international system. Um, do you think there's a danger if the U.S. withdraws from this one that it signals? Um, U.S. intentions maybe to withdraw from others? Does it make it too easy to sort of enter in and out of agreements? Um, I, you know, I think about negotiations with Iran and, and North Korea in particular. Uh, does it endanger sort of U.S. standing in, in that way? You know, I mean, I think it does indicate that the Trump administration and people within the Trump administration are really serious about disliking arms control. Um, and uh, they want to pull out of a lot of arms control agreements, and this is a pretty easy one for them to justify pulling out of, right, because of the, the problems that are associated with it. Um, 
you know, that said, I, I think a lot of people suspect that the Russians wanted to dump this anyway, right? That, that um, in a lot of ways, what they've been doing is just trying to push the United States to ditch this agreement, um, in part because they have their own concerns about China, in part because they like the idea of building mm-hmm. cruise missiles and other missiles. So, make, so keep pushing and, and hope the U.S. breaks yeah, 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 first, exactly. right? And, and that way, they're not to blame for the fall of the treaty, and the Europeans blame the Americans. And in that sense, they played it perfectly because that's exactly what's happening what they what they did how how do you think this plays in with current u.s discussions about sort of hardening relationships with russia ongoing conversations about the trump administration's relationship to russia um there seems to be sort of domestic political questions maybe at play here as well this might signal that the u.s is taking a harder line against russia at a critical political moment? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And in fact, I saw something this morning that um, suggested that some in the administration may be thinking that this is um, this is a step that sort of breaks the condominium between Russia and China. Mm-hmm. Right? Russia and China have been really, really uh, cozy over the past decade. Um, and allowing the Russians to build these medium-range or, or intermediate-range and short-range systems again means that, you know, sure, they might deploy them against NATO, but they also might deploy them against the Chinese. Um, and so maybe that's a way of breaking that relationship okay. up. Um, but, I mean, again, I mean, this this doesn't feel very hardline against Russia because I don't think the Russians like this treaty in the first place. Um, and so I think perhaps domestically... It's going to be used, and it's going to be the argument is going to be that's like, hey, you know, how Putin did not put us in office. Look what we just did. We broke mm-hmm. an arms control right. agreement with him. Um, and, but again, I mean, I, I don't think it's really going to damage extant U.S. relations with Russia. Not like the ABM Treaty did, right? They really cared about the ABM Treaty, right. and they were really upset that we pulled out when we pulled out of the ABM Treaty. But I don't get the sense from anyone that the Russians that really there's going to be much, much sort of hue and cry right. over over this one. Um, so if we think about what what might happen, you, and you've talked about this a little bit, but if we're going to sort of look into the future and, and do a little bit of prognosticating, what do you think are the likely consequences if the U.S. does withdraw from the from the INF? I think that we're going to see Russia uh, deploy more of the prohibited systems that uh, it's been deploying, and I think that. You know, they also have cruise missile systems. I mean, the, the thing about the INF is that if you can put a cruise missile on a boat, it's fine. And so, literally, they put cruise missiles on boats and then had them in the Caspian Sea mm-hmm. and then fired them at Syria. And that was fine. And so, you know, they can just take the cruise missiles off the so boats. These are sort of distinctions without a lot of difference in <laughs> terms of effects. You, you can put a boat in a lake with a cruise missile. And, and, okay. <laughs> and it's fine. Then you can anything you can put on a boat, you can put on a piece of land, right? And so they'll deploy more systems. Um, whether that will, you know, Russia's not the Soviet Union; it doesn't have doesn't have the defense industrial base to sort of overwhelm NATO in the way that it did in 1985. So they'll deploy more, but I don't think it'll be transformative of the balance of power in the in Europe. And in the Pacific, I think we're going to see a lot of really innovative thinking uh, on the American side about how to use these different kinds of systems to create problems for the Chinese and to create problems for long-term Chinese planning. I mean, one thing that the the end of this treaty, it, it makes the Philippines really important mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, if the United States could ever convince the Philippines to host these things, it's huge. I mean, it really creates tremendous problems for China. And so in some sense, the Philippines becomes more important. Okay, so it, it would alter sort of diplomatic 
and sort of mill-to-mill partnerships within the Asia-Pacific. Um, it, it sort of changes the dynamics within Europe and, and Eastern Europe as well. Do you think, um, are, there, are there broader questions that U.S. policymakers need to be asking before they uh, sort of make decisions about withdrawing from treaties like is there are there are there questions or a, or a process that you think we ought to be thinking through when making this sort of decision yeah i mean every arms control agreement is a is a reflection of structural realities right it has to be built on a particular structural reality you start there and then you use the treaty to solve a problem that's introduced by that structural reality right and then that's what a treaty an arms control treaty is supposed to do when that structural reality changes you know, don't cling to the old treaty when the foundation is gone, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't mean you just dump any treaty that you happen to have, right? I mean, there are still other arms control treaties that do really good things, especially in terms of limitation on nuclear weapons, right? And we can also think in terms of future arms control, right, where we could sit down with the Chinese, perhaps, and say, all right, well, you know, what can we do to manage this arms race in uh, the South and East China Sea, right? Now that we're all on the same page, what can we do to to hold these things in? Um, And so arms control, I think, can still be a useful tool. It just has has to be connected to sort of basic principles of international relations. Mm Um, one last sort of question. It sounds like there's a. It sounds like you're on the side of like this isn't a calamity, right? The world is not ending. The sky is not falling. Um, do you think of the people who are making that argument? Because there there are plenty of people out there who, who are sort of arguing that this is a really really bad idea uh, for the U.S. to withdraw from the treaty. What's the What's the strongest point that they have sort of in their in their column? I think the strongest point is the strongest point is a process column, right? That um, or the, the process argument, which is that um, the way that the administration went about this, uh, sort of announcing it on the campaign trail and is mm-hmm. anou- announcing it as part of a, a domestic U.S. Uh, uh, election campaign, did not involve any consultation with the allies, did not involve any notion that um, we were paying attention to the things that uh, the European allies were saying, um, to their genuine concerns about this, um, and sort of more generally is now seen as part of a, you know just a long-term antagonistic campaign against our NATO allies, mm-hmm. right? where we've been, we've been antagonizing them in lots of ways, um, needlessly antagonizing them, which is a problem when you need to antagonize them, right? So it's, right. this is why you shouldn't needlessly antagonize people. Antagonizing should always be needful? <laughs> is, that, is that a word? Antagonize when necessary, <laughs> okay. but not when not necessary. Um, and I think that's extremely well taken, mm-hmm. right? That that it's just it demonstrates just complete contempt of um, the interests and uh, feelings of the European allies, which is a problem. So that the the, the argument would go something like we the treaty may need to be revised, withdrawn from, changed. Like the the like you said, the reality is such that the INF doesn't do what we want it to do or need it to do anymore. Um, but that process ought to be deliberative, thoughtful, in sort of consult with allies and partners, um, and and maybe that that process matters actually quite a lot, um, even if the end result is is the same. Right. Okay. Right. So, all right. Anything anything else that you think our listening audience at home um, should know, or, or things that they should sort of ask as this pops up in the news? 
First, the the word, the acronym GLICM is one of my favorite acronyms. It's pretty fantastic. It's a good like guttural. No, no, exactly. Cell. I mean, it doesn't have any doesn't have any vowels in it. It's perfect. And so, um, you know, coming to know what GLICM means and what GLICM implies, I think down the road, um, I mean, down the road, this could be a fairly big deal in terms of the relations between the services in the United States. There are people out there. Um, Eugene Colts is one, TX Ham is another, who argue that glickums are the magic bullet, right? That glickums, in a lot of ways, relieve us of the need of uh, long-range bombers, relieve us of the need of aircraft carriers and um, uh, nuclear submarines, um, nuclear attack So it gives you a different way to project power, right? A different, cheaper way, and... You know, glycums might end up being, you know, there might be fights over which service develops, which kinds mm-hmm. of weapons. and But in a way, you know, they're also, I think they are in the end going to be a way for the Army to carve its way back mm-hmm. into the Pacific. Cheaper, but also maybe more reliant on partners and allies, right, right to let us use right. the land uh, on which to, to base these. So that that's going to come with different kinds of costs, right? These are opportunity costs, I guess, at the end of the day. Right. I mean, right now the Army has a missile called the PRISM missile that it's developing that has literally, its range is 499 kilometers. And the Army is quite certain, no, it can only go 499 kilometers. It can't go more, which is, right, a joke. And so we'll we'll see more developments along that line. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. And we're signing off from the War Room. Thank you so much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.